The island. Have you seen the island? So if you, if you haven't, you don't need to. It's okay. It's relatively simple to explain. What he does is he takes a bunch of relatively ordinary people, relatively ordinary people, and he abandons them on a desert island. Seems like quite an easy job, really, for Bear Grylls, doesn't it? He abandons them on this desert island, and he abandons them with just the absolute essentials to survive. So he abandons them with um, some big knives. Always look quite exciting, I thought. Some big knives, and obviously lots and lots of camera gear, because how could you survive, you know, nowadays without a selfie stick or something like that? Lots of people start out on the island quite optimistic. They start out thinking, well, this is going to be a bit of a walk in the park. We're going to have rather a nice holiday in the sun here. But it turns out once you've eaten the coconuts that washed up on shore, once you've, once you've caught most of the fish that are nearby in the bay, once you've found the jungle fruit that's easily picked... Once you've turned all the limpets into limpet soup, which I'm not sure sounds that appealing, it starts to get harder and harder to survive on a desert island. Now, I want you to picture another survival program, okay? Imagine this survival program. What happens in this case is you take a bunch of people and you abandon them in the desert. Full stop. You abandon them in the desert to survive. And let's say you don't just do it like Bear does with um, 10 or 12 people. Let's say you do it with, oh, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the middle of the desert. We could call this new show Exodus. Because basically that's what's happened here. That's what's happened. When we get up to the story that we read earlier in the service, that's what's happened. Um, Let me give you a really quick recap of where we are. God's people were slaves in Egypt under the thumb of Pharaoh, oppressed for hundreds of years. And God has freed them through a series of ever-increasingly deadly plagues. The Egyptians finally give up and say, fine, go worship your God. And then as the Israelites are wandering off, they say, actually, hang on a minute. That wasn't such a good idea. They chase after them. The Israelites get to this sea. We think it's all over, uh, but it isn't. God opens the sea and makes a path. The Israelites get through, but they're still being chased. And then at the last moment, God closes the sea back on the Egyptians. The Israelites are delivered. They've escaped from slavery. They're free. And then they wander into the desert. Then they wander into the desert. They start this journey, this long journey, which will turn out to be very significant for them and for us. As we think about decamping from this building and and moving down the street, we should be very thankful that the journey we're facing is not a journey like this. But if you could find again Exodus chapter 16 with me, it'd be helpful if you had your Bibles open. If you want to use one of these church ones, again, that's on page, well, it starts on 73, but most of it's on 74. It's probably going to be over on page 74. And today we're going to be thinking about this remarkable story of how God's people, how thousands and thousands of God's people survived their long journey through a barren desert wilderness. Do you think it makes as exciting viewing as the island? I, I'm not sure, but it makes exciting and it makes very helpful reading and thinking for us. What does God have to say to us today? Well, I'm not a giant fan of 17 points all beginning with the same letter, but today I thought, I thought I'd, uh, I'd just uh, take one for the team and give you four E's. Okay, So I want to give you four E's as we think about what's going on with this strange stuff, this manna. And the first thing to say is that food is rather obviously essential. Right? It's essential. It's a critical basic need. I can go without food all morning, allegedly. 
People can manage for days, even weeks, perhaps, in the extreme. But there's no question, without food, pretty soon life comes to a halt. So when we find the Israelites moaning about not having any food in the midst of an inhospitable desert, we, we can't be too critical of them. They actually do need food or they're going to die. Now, they must have brought along some supplies with them. We're about 45 days into their desert journey. And it's only now they start to complain. So they must have carried some supplies as they headed out of Egypt. But it, it seems like food has now become a serious problem. And it's worth reflecting on the scale of this problem. So there are about 600,000 men involved and then obviously some women and children as well. That's what Exodus 12.37 says to us. So we're probably talking more than a million Israelites in a desert needing food. Can you think about that? Feeding a million people is not easy anywhere. Right? Imagine what it would take to feed Edinburgh twice this morning. Can you just picture for a minute just how many shelves of Sainsbury sandwiches we are talking about to feed a million people? This is a lot of food we're talking about. It's a serious problem anywhere, but imagine trying to do it in the middle of a desert. No Tesco nearby. And you're just passing through. It's a, it's a colossal problem. It's important for us to gather just how dependent this number of people are on miraculous provision. Even if they were walking through, I don't know, a forest with fruit trees, they'd run out of food. But they're in a desert. There is no way this problem, no human way this problem could get anywhere near solved. This is completely impossible. There's just going to be a lot of dead people very soon unless God shows up. So the first E, okay, God's provision for his people is absolutely essential. Second E, Effort, okay? The second thing I want to point out is the efforts required from the people, even though God's providing for them. You see, it wasn't loaves of fresh crusty bread that fell out of the sky each night. It actually wasn't. It wasn't that when the Israelites woke in the morning in their tents, they, they looked in their food drawer. I don't know what you have for a food drawer in a tent. Where they kept their food? They looked in where they kept their food, and look, there's a nice focaccia. Today's going to work out just fine. Oddly, that, that wasn't how God did it at all. And we need to remember God could have done it that way. If you know your Bibles, you might remember stories like um, Elijah with the widow whose oil and flour didn't run out, or Jesus with five loaves and two fishes being able to make that go an awful long way. God could have done it a different way, but that's not how he's decided to do it here. Manna is described a little bit later on in verse 31 like being coriander seeds. All the chefs are like, oh, coriander seeds. Everyone else is like, thanks. A coriander seed. Imagine a peppercorn, okay? A black peppercorn. About one and a half times a black peppercorn. And they're white, okay? So a little bit different. A little bit different. And it seems like during the night, these just showed up lying on the ground all around them. I mean, it's food. But it's not exactly dead easy, is it? The Israelites had to go and gather the manna and they had to cook it. Verse 16 tells us they had to gather an omer. Uh, I know it was one of these old measures, about two liters, one of those nice small milk bottles. Okay, so you're trying to fill a milk bottle with peppercorns off of a desert floor. This is not that easy. Like if you just take the bottle and you just scoop it along, you are going to have very well-worn teeth very quickly. So can you picture people just picking up these tiny grains and dropping them in and trying to fill a two-liter bottle? That's... That's quite a lot of work, isn't it? And then they cart it back to camp and they grind it and they bake it or boil it, we're told. So... Back to the island for a minute, okay? Bear Grylls dumps these people on an island. And actually, he already knows living on a desert island in the middle of nowhere is pretty, pretty tough. We're watching in the current series, 
Um, they're, they're, they're literally starving. Some of them are so hungry, they can't even go out and, and hunt anymore. And they're rubbish at hunting anyway. They lost 30 stone between them, which is one way of getting it done, if you need to get it done. Um, but Bear is very clear, there is actually enough food on the island for them to live. In fact, he made sure of it. He went and dumped some extra animals on the island. He stocked it with exciting, edible creatures. And uh, he, he knows there's enough food. The only thing is they have to actually catch it. And, and most of it, turns out, doesn't actually want to be eaten. <clears throat> so, so, so provision, okay, provision for God's people, God, God's providing for his people, takes some effort. He's designed it here so it takes some effort to enjoy that provision. Okay, it's essential. It takes effort. Third E, it's enough. This manna has some very strange properties, as the Israelites quickly discover. And one is that there's always enough. Have a look at verse 18. When they measured it, it says, those who gathered much didn't have too much. Those who gathered little didn't have too little. Each one just ended up with the right amount. Some perhaps are thinking to themselves, food, at last. We've got food and they're thinking, you know what I need to do when there's actually food on the ground? I need to get tons of the stuff. I really need to stack it tall so I've got something to eat tomorrow. Some of them perhaps just wake up with the munchies. They're like, I only need a lot of manna today. But it doesn't matter when they measure up at the end of the day. They've all got the right amount. And on the other side, I mean, maybe you slept in. And so you were a bit late collecting. Or maybe you're just lazy. Or maybe you're just kind of short-sighted. And you're like, sand, manna, sand, manna. It's not going very well for you. But if you didn't collect enough, you still, you still ended up with enough. It's a great picture of how God's provision for us works, right? God's provision for us is enough. Now, as, as consumers, as modern consumers, the idea of enough is not very appetizing, really. Enough's a hard concept for us to grasp. But the way God provides for us, God provides enough. Final E, okay, four E's, the last one. This manna is everyday stuff. It doesn't last God tells Moses the Israelites are meant to gather a day's portion every day. That's verse 4. He says, yeah, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. The people are to go out each day, gather enough for that day. It's just a one-day thing. Now, not everyone listens fancy. That feels like being a parent for a minute there. Um, Some folk, in verse 20, it says they go out and they try and hang on to some for the next day. Now, perhaps they were just being prudent and they thought, you know, I need to stockpile. Or perhaps they were just not feeling like going out to eat tomorrow but either way it doesn't keep it it it, it turns stinky and it breeds worms you get two negatives stinky would have been enough for me but worms I guess there's bear would tell us lots of protein in worms they could have just gone for it would have been okay but obviously the manna wasn't that bad because they didn't want to eat the worms they were like I'll get some more manna fair enough then so pretty quickly they get the idea manna is this each day stuff you've got to go and collect it each day like it or not the place where this is going to be stored is in God's storehouses and not in our storehouses, right? The place where we, this is kept is with God and not with us. Now imagine this for a minute. Imagine what sort of position this puts you in. Picture living in a, a, a desert camp of a million people. You've seen something like this. Do you know the jungle in Calais where they've made this kind of temporary kind of campsite for all of the immigrants? Okay, imagine a jungle like that. Now imagine it being much, much, much bigger and nobody has any food. There is not a drop of food anywhere in the entire camp. You're surrounded by a million people and no one's got any food. 
You can't keep a single grain of food overnight. Can you see how utterly dependent that makes you on fresh supplies? Every day, you're absolutely dependent on God for food, and therefore you're dependent on God for your life. Imagine how that feels, but that's not an accident at all. That's actually part of how God has structured this, keeping them depending on him. He lets us in on his purposes. Have a look at verse 12. He says, at twilight you'll eat meat, in the morning you'll be filled with bread. And here's his purpose in it. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Then you'll know that I'm the Lord your God. The, the manna, this daily provision is to show the Israelites that God is God. But when you think about it, that's kind of surprising really, isn't it? So these are the very same Israelites who just saw Egypt decimated by this series of plagues. These are the very same Israelites who walked through the sea on dry ground. These are the very same ones. This is 40 days ago. I don't know how good your memory is, but you can probably remember a thing or two 40 days ago. Let's say it was like the biggest thing that ever happened in your entire life. You can probably remember that 40 days after. But I think the way to understand this daily nature of provision is that actually... God recognizes, he knows us, he knows what we're like, he understands our forgetfulness. He understands how quickly even those dramatic experiences that we have in our lives fade out of our memory. I'm sure many of you could testify to a time when you knew God had stepped into your life. If you thought about it, you could probably think about times where that happened, but it's easy for those memories to fade away and not be kind of present with us. But what they have here is a reminder of God's power and God's providence and their dependence on him. They have it in their breakfast bowls every day. God is very good to them in that. So four E's, okay, the manna was essential. It took effort together. There was enough all the time and they had to get it each day. But there's a little bit more to the story than this. We couldn't finish with just four points. That'd be the wrong number. Um, You might not have noticed, but in this story, we see alongside God's provision for his people, we see that he's doing something else for them. He is testing his people. Have a look at verse 4. And in verse 4, you can see this. God is testing his people. He says, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And then he says, in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. He's going to test them and see whether they're following his instructions. So God is not just providing for his people, but in the way he provides for them, he's testing his people. I guess this time of year, testing is a very topical subject. Many of you are being tested right now, particularly if you're at the younger end of the age spectrum. But I'm hoping you won't end up sharing the test results these guys got, right? Because what's the Israelites' test result? It's a fail. Do they, do they trust God? Do they obey God? Do they keep his commands? He says, Connect, collect enough for each day. And what do they do? No, nah, I don't trust you. I don't think you really meant that. Let me just gather up a bit more. He says, he says on, the, on the seventh day, there isn't going to be any, so don't bother. And out they go. And they're like, oh. they are test failures. How often is it they're meant to go out collecting? Each day together enough for that day and instead you get this stinky wormy manna showing up now you could dress this up you could say this is just prudence the reason people go out to collect more 
than they need. The reason people try and hang on to it overnight, the reason people go out to collect on the seventh day when they're told not to, that's prudence. That's mum trying to make sure there's food on the table. That's dad trying to make sure we've got something to eat tomorrow. But once you start to think about it, once you start to scratch at it, what we don't have here is prudence. The real reason they're hanging on to today's man, and no matter what it might look like, no matter what they might claim, the real reason they're hanging on to it is because they don't believe there will be any tomorrow. It's not prudence, not when God has promised to provide for his people. When God has promised that he's going to give them a day's portion each day, just like he said, they won't take God at his word. They won't follow his instructions. Now, Sometimes when I read about the Israelites, and probably often when you read about the Israelites, you think, well, what a, bu- what a bunch of sucky losers. I mean, what lightweights. God shows up and speaks to them. He tells them what to do. And what, they can do it for like half an hour? And then they wander off? Like our entire Old Testament is one story of just what incredible losers. These like, we, we, we can look at them like that. We can think, my goodness, well, if I was there in camp, I obviously would be a much more obedient soul. But the fickle finger of blame has a nasty habit of spinning around and pointing right back at us, doesn't it? This this test-failing nature is not something that first shows up in the Bible when we see Israel, God's people. It doesn't first show up there, does it? And it's not something that's unique to them either. I'll roll back in your heads to the very beginning of the Bible. And don't you see exactly the same thing? How many trees could Adam and Eve eat from? All of the trees in the garden apart from one. How many are forbidden? Just the one. How long does it take before they're listening to, did God really say? Undermining their obedience, eating away at their trust that God is really good. That God really has what is best for them in store. That he's not holding back the best fruit of all. You know, I tried the mangoes. I tried the apples. I tried the pineapples. They were pretty good. I tried the avocado. Strange. Um, But there's this, this fruit on the tree of knowledge. And I just bet that's the best one. I bet that's why God doesn't want me to have it. Because he wants to keep what is best from me. He doesn't really want what's good for me. God's keeping good things back from you like the fruit on that tree. There's the lie and our first parents swallow it whole. Just the same thing, right? Did God really say, don't keep any until tomorrow? Are you sure? Does God really want the best for you? Is he really going to look out for you? Wouldn't you be better off if you kept some just in case? It's the same lie. It's the same distrust. When we don't trust, God really has our best interests at heart. When we don't take him at his word, we're doing the same thing, aren't we? Does God really have what's best in mind for us? When he says to us, sex belongs only in marriage. When he says that, is he keeping back something good from us? Is he, is he taking away from us something good we could otherwise have? If you're, if you're single here today, has God taken away from you something is he holding back from you what's best? Culture all around you whispers, did God really say? Did God really say that? Isn't he just a spoil sport? Doesn't he want to just keep away what's good from you? Obedience, time and time again, is a question of trust. It's a question of trusting that God actually wants what's best for you. 
His commands for you are actually what's good. Obedience for the Israelites was trusting God and they failed and we failed too. Just like our first parents failed. The, the, the test, this manna test, it wasn't for the, it wasn't for God. We can be sure actually that God wasn't surprised by the result. He knew what would happen there in the desert. He knows people inside and out. He made us and designed us. He knew the Israelites wouldn't keep his commands. He knew they would struggle to trust him. He knows that we do not keep his commands and that we struggle to trust him. The test here was not for God's benefit. Do you know what the test here was for? It was for the Israelites' benefit. And here's what it did for them. It showed them their hearts. Just like the tests God's give us show us our hearts. These tests here, these tests of obedience, show the Israelites they don't really trust God. No matter what words they said, no matter what songs they sang. Remember when they came across the water, safe on the other side, they sing this great song of praise to God. Song of faith towards Him. No matter what things they saw with their own eyes, this same sort of test reveals our hearts too. No matter what we sing, no matter what we say, no matter what we pray. When we doubt God, when we question his commands, when we question whether his rule over us is good, is for our good. When we we career straight through his commands like they're plastic crash barriers, forget that they're meant to keep us from going over the cliff. Our hearts are revealed. At the end of the day, I don't trust God as I should and you don't trust God as you should. And the hard truth about this is that that is not pleasing to God. When we fail to trust God, that is not pleasing to Him. It's displeasing to Him. Now, where do we go from this? Where do we go from this point where we discover our own hearts, where we we discover what we're really like? We discover how lost we are. Thankfully, God provides again uh, and add another layer. You see, there's, a, there's another layer to this story. Um, manna is God's real physical provision for his people in the desert. It genuinely, literally came down out of the sky and was on the ground all around them when they woke up to collect and eat. It really happened. But like so many things in the Exodus story, it is also a picture for us. A picture of something bigger. It's like the shadow that leads us back to the real thing. It's a picture of God's true provision. His perfect provision, the true bread from heaven. So what we're going to do now is we're going to let Jesus explain this to us. So flip with me um, to John chapter 6, or if you're in these red Bibles, that's page 1070. 1070. John chapter 6. Jesus helps us understand what this points to. John chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 30. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you 
the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Just going to stop there for a moment. Jesus is saying himself. He's saying, I am the real thing that this man appointed to. It's like a picture for you of how God provides. And I am the reality of God's provision for you. Skip on to verse 47. And we'll read a little bit more as Jesus carries on explaining. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Manna was God's real provision for his people, real food for real people who needed to eat so they could live and not die. But they still died in the end. Jesus is God's spiritual provision for his people, spiritual food which will keep them alive forever. Jesus' flesh, his body is the, the, the true manna, the true bread. Now, what does it mean that he gives us his body as the bread? What is he meaning? Why do we need his body to keep us alive forever? Well, the problem we have with eternal lives ourselves, put briefly, is death, right? That's our problem. We don't live forever because we die. And why do we die? The Bible tells us quite clearly. We die because we are under God's curse as lawbreakers, as people who do not do what he has told us to do. We break God's law, that's called sin. And sin results in death. It's a real simple equation. Life plus sin equals death. Now we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. We break God's law and that's why we die. Because life plus sin is death. Putting ourselves into the manna story we've been thinking about today. It's like we are out there in this wilderness, in this giant desert, ironically called the desert of sin. It's just an accident between the two languages. But we are out there in this desert of sin. We haven't got what we need to live. We're going to die unless somebody does something. And then Jesus comes and offers us his body as God's provision to give us life again. He offers us this exchange, this swap. He says, I tasted death for you in your place that you deserved. And because of that, you can share in my body, one which earned life. Jesus is on quite another level, God's provision for his people. Jesus isn't, you see, uh, a test failure like these Israelites, like, like Adam and Eve, like, like us. Jesus is not one of these test failures. Jesus has his own wilderness wandering experience. You might remember from the story of Jesus, he spent 40 days in the desert being tempted. Remember that? 40 days is this unmistakable echo of the 40 years the Israelites spent wandering around the desert. And their 40 years of disobedience and ignoring God and failing to obey Him. In Jesus' 40 days in the desert, 
He doesn't fail the test. He passes it. The devil invites him to doubt God's provision. To doubt God's plan. To turn away from it. He says, tell these stones to become bread. And we've got bread again in the wilderness. Where's the bread in the wilderness going to come from? Are you going to make it, Jesus? Are you going to take matters into your own hand? But Jesus trusts God to provide for him instead. He looks to God for the provision of what Jesus really needs to live. Jesus keeps God's commands. He's a test passer. It doesn't end there. Jesus' entire life is, is a life of test passing. All the way up to the cross, which is this greatest test of obedience. Jesus, are you really going to go to the cross? Are you really going to pursue this through to the end? Well, he didn't have to. He could have turned away, right? He could have said, you know this whole Messiah thing? It's not for me. I'm going back into the desert. He could have, he could have called in 12 legions of angels and conducted a massive angelic airstrike and nuked the area from orbit. He could have just decided, that's enough, and rolled up the sky and said, End. But instead he went to the cross and he died. He passed that ultimate obedience test for us, trusting God to the uttermost. And that trust is vindicated when God raises him from the dead, victorious. So when Jesus offers us his body as God's provision, what he's offering us is somebody who passed the test, which we fail. He's offering us life in the killer desert we've made for ourselves through our disobedience. He's offering us a, a share in his perfection, a right to stand before God without shame. When our distrust of God is revealed, when we fail to believe that he wants and knows what is best for us, when we won't keep his commands, we need to come back to Jesus, God's provision of the one who did trust and did please We need to repent of our sin. Repent of our sin. What does that mean? Turn away from it. Choose another path. Pick a different track to ride down. We need to take hold of God's provision for us, which renews our life. So I want us just to come back to this story of manna and read it with newly opened eyes and just to see what this tells us about God's deepest provision for us. Because we have lessons to learn still, just like the Israelites did. Remember those four E's? Let's take another look at those four E's with wider eyes. Well, what do we find? So we talked about the manna being essential. And just like this manna was the essential food for the Israelites, Jesus, God's provision for us, is absolutely essential. We can't pretend this is like an optional thing. Just like those islanders bear maroon, just like the Israelites in the middle of the desert. There is no uncertainty about where this is going to go if we don't take hold of the provision that God has given for us. There is only death ahead. We're certainly going to die. There is no way we will live. There's no way we can sustain ourselves. It's futile. Perhaps we might have some supplies in our bag which we think can keep us going for a while. But in the end, death is still inevitable. It's not this question of if, it's a question of when, right? It's true for everyone. Death happens to 100% of people. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. What does that mean for us today? Well, if you're a Christian here, if you call yourself a Christian, let's recognize again just how dependent we are on God's provision for us. How without God's provision, we are simply dead. 
how without his grace we are hopeless. There was nothing we could do at all. This life we live, this life which might seem like it's ours to do with as we please, well, it's a life that he has given us and bought for us. Without his provision, all that we wanted, all that we might have chosen for ourselves, well, that was death. And the life we've got now because of his provision, that belongs to God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He says, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Should teach us again about how we should look at the world around us. I think it's very easy for us to say we live in a, a city full of lost people. And, and lost, I think, sometimes doesn't quite capture it. Lost means I'm in the grocery idea, uh, you know, aisle and I can't find the milk. I'm lost or I'm looking for the castle and here I am somewhere in the old town. I'm lost. It's kind of a mild inconvenience. Think about it instead like this, okay? Here we are, a church, living in the middle of a desert. We're living in the middle of a desert and all around us there is nothing at all that will sustain people's life. All that will happen to everyone around us is that they will die. That is certainly what will happen to them. People are dying of spiritual hunger all around us. We know where they can find abundant food. We know where it is. We know what they need to do. You have to see this world for what it is. It helps us not to stay silent. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here today, well, don't close your eyes to the certainty of death, okay? Let that sharpen your thinking. Let that make you think. This is not a question of if I am going to die. It's simply a question of when. What can I do about that? What does that mean? How does that shape the picture of everything? You cannot live without God's provision. And that leads me on to my second D. It's not just essential, but it takes effort. God's provision still takes effort for us. Perhaps it's not as hard as scrabbling around on the desert floor, picking up peppercorns. But it takes a little effort still. If you're not a Christian here today... God's provision for you, God's giving of life for you is right there. It's lying on the floor all around you. You just need to go and pick it up. It's near you. The, the, the word of life is near you. You have to take it, but you do actually have to take it. Not just see that it's there all around you. The Israelites' tummies would still have been rumbling if they just laid in bed. In the end, they would have died if they just laid in bed, despite God's provision all around them. You have to actually take it. And Romans 10.9 tells us how to do that. It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So allow your heart to believe this amazing truth. Decide to confess that and to accept that Jesus is Lord. That's a loaded statement. That means Jesus is in charge. He is the boss and the master. That you will bow the knee to him. It's so simple to do this. And yet people will die surrounded by food because they will not go and take it. Don't let that be you today. You can do it today. You can do it now. It's really simple. It just takes a little effort to grab on to God's provision for you. Still have doubts? 30, it's enough. God's provision is enough 
for us. Just like there was enough manna for one million Israelites in the middle of the desert. Each one had enough, whether they gathered little or gathered much. Some of us here struggle to believe that there is enough forgiveness for someone like us. Has God really provided enough to deal with what I need? And he gives us a clear answer to that. He says, yes, it is enough for anyone and for everyone. You think about the damage you've done. You think about the mess you have made of this life. You think about the trail of destruction you've left behind you. Is God's grace enough for someone like you? Yes, it is enough for everyone. This isn't like an election, right, where the, the, the outcome is uncertain and you need to watch the results into the night. The votes are stacking up. It could go either way. I'm not sure. Am I really going to have enough in my account from God's provision to really make it? It's not like that sort of thing. You don't go out to take hold of Jesus' forgiveness and come back to camp and find you don't have enough. When you go take hold of God's provision, there's always enough. Jesus is always enough for everyone. And this is a really important point for Christians. If you'd call yourself a Christian here today, we've got to get this into our heads, that Jesus' provision is enough. So we do not need to add anything to it. It's very easy to start wondering if it really is enough. If we really have enough credit for God. Have you really honestly never wondered about whether you've been good enough? Have you never had that wondering? You should try it as a pastor. Am I really good enough to stand up and talk to other people about this? Surely you've wondered whether you really measure up, whether you're kind enough, whether you pray enough, whether you spend enough time telling other people about Jesus, whether you've knocked on enough doors, signed up on enough rotas, whether you've really read your Bible and prayed every day so that you can grow, grow, grow. you've ever had those thoughts as a Christian and I bet most of us have if you've ever had those thoughts we've lost our grasp on this truth that God's provision for us in Jesus is enough it is done it's finished God's not just tolerating us he loves us he welcomes us he embraces us When we try and top it up, it's like you go out and you collect some manna from around. You get back to camp and you grind it up and you think, I'm just going to toss a few more things into the pot here to make sure my family have enough to eat. But that's misunderstanding, isn't it? Because the truth is we have nothing at all to put in that pot. We have nothing to contribute, right? We have nothing at all that we can add to this essential giving of life that comes from Jesus. We're going to live because of God's provision, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we've added. We're only going to live because of God's provision and all of it, absolutely all of it, comes from God. All our own obedience, all our point scoring, all our goodness, all of that adds nothing to the pot. So we don't need to be a church full of guilty secret failures. We really don't. We don't need to fear being honest with one another about where we're losers and where we fail to measure up. Let's be a church so clear on God's grace that we can be honest and real with each other and with God about the way that we struggle to live well for Him. 
Because we know it's by grace we've been saved and not by works. We added nothing to this pot. Lastly, let me finish with this. God's provision for us is still very much an each day thing. It's like the manna. It still calls us to this ongoing dependence, right? And it's meant to. We're meant to come back to God again and again and again needing him. Recognizing every day. It's not me feeding myself. It's not me that makes me alive today. Not at all. I added nothing to this pot. Everything that makes me alive today came from God. I have to keep on trusting God for our provision, for our salvation, because there is no life anywhere else. There's no food anywhere else. There's nothing anywhere else that will actually sustain us. Each day we come empty with nothing, and God fills our hands with life. Because of Jesus, not because of us. The real daily dependence we have on God is beautifully and symbolically summed up by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. We prayed earlier together, didn't we? Give us this day our daily bread. Now we come to God each day and we ask for provision. And we ask for real physical provision to feed us and keep us alive. Absolutely. We come to God each day and we ask Him for shelter and for protection. We need these things. We ask Him for those. But we come to God each day and we ask Him for spiritual bread, the true bread from heaven. We ask Him for God's perfect provision for us the only thing that really gives us life let's pray together